0: If you will, please look with me, as we did last time together, at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And our hope this morning is that in preparation for the soon coming end, you and I would pray with discernment, that we would love with sin-covering fervor, that we would serve strangers without complaint, that we would serve one another with our grace gifts so that God would in fact be glorified. This is who we are. We are called to glorify God. It ought to be the heartbeat of our hearts to glorify God. Everything we do must be run through the grid of will it glorify God or not. When you're concerned about whether or not you ought to go ahead with a thought you've had, ask the question, will it glorify God? Now you won't always get it right, but it's a good starting place to run your every thought, your every word, your every deed, your every look. Everything you look at, everything you do, everything you say, everything you think, run through the grid of, will it glorify God? See, that changes everything, doesn't it? it should. It certainly should change almost everything. There may be times in your life where you've glorified God, even though you weren't saying, will it glorify God? Because why? Because you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. You walk in a manner that's, uh, you're, you're filled by the Spirit of God. You want to be faithful to him. You know the word. You're trying to be honest and faithful to what his word has commanded of you. So in a natural sense, you do glorify God, but it can't hurt to add that complimentary effort by asking the question, will it glorify God? If you're wondering whether or not your conduct has been that which it should be, you can ask the question, did it glorify God? Again, it's a great starting place want to review where we were last time we were in this text i told you to remember the imminent return of christ remember that that was point number 1 in an effort to ensure that all that we do in these things would glorify god number 1 remember the imminent return of christ and some would laugh at us and say for 2000 years you've been saying he's coming back he's coming back He's coming soon, and in light of all eternity, he is coming soon. In fact, I would say in light of all human history, he is coming soon. We can say this for sure, it's getting closer. That we know, we don't know the date nor the time, nor does he. Only the Father knows when he will return. But this is what we long for, the end of all eternity things it's the end of all things certainly in your lifetime if you're in christ when he returns everything comes to a screeching halt and you go to heaven to be with him this word has everything to do with fulfillment or completion it is not so much the termination of something as it is the fulfillment of something that's big and grandiose it's really the biggest and most grandiose thing of all history and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him Hebrews nine twenty-eight. to those who eagerly await Him? Is that you? Is that your heart? Do you genuinely long for His return? Is that what you think about when you wake up in the morning? Or is that what you've written on a little sticky note so that you will think about it when you wake up in the morning? That's not my default, not every day anyway, but you and I certainly can place triggers in our lives that will help us to be inclined to think about the return of our Savior. I like how the writer of Hebrews tells us clearly He does not come with reference to sin he came with reference to sin did he not he came to die for sins and he did that and he accomplished it in full he propitiated sins he satisfied God with regard to the sins of the elect and therefore propitiation certainly took place there's no question about it when he returns He comes to take us home because that propitiation has taken place and we find joy in that glorifying moment, glorifying of Him, of course. Point number two, pray with discernment. Pray with discernment. Now, we qualified this last week, and I don't mean that I qualified the Scripture. I simply mean that you want to be careful that when you call yourself to pray with discernment, and you call others that you're teaching or discipling into praying with the discernment that you don't exhibit a critical spirit toward those who are new in the faith who pray in such a way that sounds a little bit like stumbling. We want to allow for that in the same way that we would allow for that in a human infant, that he, as he grows in his ability to communicate what he needs. It starts with a lot of crying and babbling and nonsensical talk, but we get it. And so we don't look at my six-month-old Silas and say, what are you trying to say? You're not making any sense at all. Don't you have any words yet? No, he's got these beautiful little coos and other funny little noises that we just smile at and think wow couldn't this last forever but that wouldn't be good would it because he would never learn to communicate himself so the same is true with a spiritual new believer a spiritual infant we must be willing to ourselves pray with discernment and be very very careful about what we expect of the growing christian but let me suggest this When you speak to someone in natural conversation, and let's just for a moment assume that that person's name is Todd. You don't say, Todd, you know, Todd, when I talk to you, Todd, I want to repeat your name, Todd, every phrase, Todd, because, Todd, I want you to know, Todd, that I know your name, Todd. Don't do that in prayer. Lord God, Father God, Lord God, Father God, Lord, I just, Father God, just Lord, I just, Father God, just don't know what to say, just Lord, Father God. You get it? You've been guilty, so have I. I don't think we ought to be critical of one another with regard to that, but we certainly want to pray with discernment. The text is clear. Be Listen, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why? For the purpose of prayer. Prayer that matters prayer that says something prayer that's substantial when we ask things of the lord we ought to do so with sound judgment and sober spirit it's a serious matter and some would say well you know the lord understands my heart yes he does but you're called to pray with sound judgment increasingly you're called to pray with sober spirit increasingly and think of it when you pray in the presence of others you really are teaching others what prayer is In addition to that, what's the purpose of all things? And we'll see this further from our text this morning. It's God's glory. Does it glorify God ultimately for a person who has been in the Lord for 5, 10, 15, 20 years to babble in his prayer life? No. That doesn't glorify God. Your prayer life speaks of your theology. Your prayer life communicates what you know about the Lord. And When we cry out to him, it really ought to be a whole lot more than, you know, Father, we just, we, just, Father we, just, we just don't know what to say, Father. It ought to be a whole lot more than that. We ought to pray with depth. If you're not sure what to pray, open your Bible. Pray the book of Psalms. Start there. Pray the book of Proverbs. Pray the gospel out of Romans 3. Pray through Galatians 5 regarding the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you could go on and on and on with sound counsel with regard to what to pray in order to communicate sound discernment in prayer as well as a sober spirit. In Matthew 6, if you want uh, an expression of prayer, I'd encourage you to follow Jesus' command. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Why? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. But when you do pray, pray in this way. Go into your inner room, pray in private. See, that's where your prayer life is really developed. How is it that some people can so seemingly easily pray in such a way that glorifies God when they pray in public? Because they're working on that in private. Not for the purpose of it being magnificent publicly, but for the purpose of God's glory in private. See that? So as you develop your private prayer life, you develop your public prayer life, and you develop your ability to minister to others in your prayer life. Well, number three, love with sin-covering fervor. It really, really is not appropriate for you or I or anyone to consider oneself to be the church watchdog with regard to everybody's sin. We really, really must be committed. You must be committed. I must be committed to letting a lot of stuff go. That's the reality of it. And as I told you last time, this post figures points back to the kindness of Christ in doing what? With love, doing what? Covering a multitude of sins. In fact, every sin of the believer. Every sin, past, present, future. That's what was accomplished on the cross. That sin was certainly covered. So what are you and I doing when we love with fervor, with passion? We are choosing to let that love cover a multitude of sins so that, now let's not forget this, because of the loving example uh, really the loving doctrine given to us in matthew 18 of confronting others sins so that by the time we have found the need to confront someone's sin we've got credibility to do it Uh, by the way i've let a lot of stuff go but i convinced at this point this should probably be addressed matthew 18 addresses unrepentant sin what are we hoping to accomplish in that restoration that we would rejoice because we've won our brother. So letting love cover a multitude of sins doesn't mean that we show up ready to poke each other at every given point where it seems as if something might need to be addressed. Let love cover so much of what you see and you will find yourself far more credible and able to address what really does need to be addressed see an example of this in genesis chapter 9 with noah's sons genesis nine twenty one, he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent ham the father of canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside what did ham not do he didn't cover his father's sin you ever get Confused by this text, what's what? How, I mean, how's this Ham's fault? Immediately went and told his brothers. He gossiped. He just went and talked to his brothers. And what do his brothers do? Here you go. But Shem, verse twenty-three, and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Love covered a multitude of sins in that moment. Number four, serve strangers without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's simple. Do I need to explain what it means to do something without complaint? Okay, here you go. It means don't complain. There's some deep Greek uh, exegesis for you. How's that? Hospitality, though, as you know, speaks of serving strangers. Now, don't bypass the reality of the new testament context here where it was really normal for new testament believers to have contact with strangers who were also believers now keep in mind what i shared with you last time peter says here be hospitable to whom to one another Who's the one another? This is the body. This is the church. Be hospitable to one another. So you can exercise hospitality with believers. The point is not just exercising hospitality with unbelievers. You are to do that as well. But here in this context, there is to be hospitality granted to those who are believers. And by the way, not to everyone who simply claims to be a believer. Because by the way, everybody does, almost. Especially in our Western culture, which is very confused about what Christianity is. So the idea is not that every time you run across somebody asking you for five bucks for gas to get to Fontana that you give them that money because you're exercising biblical hospitality. I'd say that's probably not wise because you don't know that person, you don't really know what that person is going to spend it on. And a dear friend of mine said to me one time, well maybe it'll just make him feel better for 20 minutes. I don't disagree with that. Let's just be sure we're not calling that biblical hospitality, and certainly not in this context for 1 Peter. Peter's talking about how we address one another, that we would love one another with a love that covers a multitude of sins. That's really all he's saying with regard to love there. But then specifically that we would extend that mindset, that attitude, that love toward others that we don't really know that well. It's not difficult to figure out who those folks are in the modern church who are genuinely believers. John says it's obvious in 1 John 3, verse 10, but it takes time. It's why you need discipleship. It's why I need to be involved in discipleship just like you do. That's why we need to be involved in smaller group environments. We call them family groups. Some churches call them home groups, so that you're really getting to know each other, And you can truly exercise that love with one another. And by God's grace, I only know how to look at what's going on in our church and just rejoice. Because it's happening at what I conclude to be a magnificent level. So I look around the room, and I'm certain, as I've said many times, I probably don't know 10% of what's really going on in all the relationships. But I hear a lot. I hear a lot. About how the Lord is using other people in your lives, people in our church, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to initiate in you a willingness to put off sin and to put on Christ as we are called to do. Well, number five. Number five, serve one another with your grace gift. This is really a call to know and implement your spiritual gifts to know and implement your spiritual gifts this is not an option you have spiritual gifts you're not that one exception throughout history that knows Christ but has not been granted giftedness And we did a series on the gifts in our larger series on the church It took some time to explain the difference between the gifts that exist and the gifts that no longer exist. Peter here divides them up into two categories. I'll show you what that is in a moment. But the point here that you and I need to meditate on, because I believe that this is the impetus of Peter's heart here, is that we are to serve one another. We're to serve one another. And you might ask, "So where do you draw that line? Because you certainly have to draw that line somewhere, right? You don't serve everybody in the whole world. You certainly don't serve every Christian in the whole world. Uh, do you limit yourself to only serving your local body? Uh, the answer to those things is, is n- no, you find yourself enthralled in connected to grafted into a local body and serving faithfully and asking yourself this question when you are given the opportunity to serve others outside your local body what will it do to advance the gospel of jesus christ legitimately honestly how can that be measured how do you measure that well don't try to do that on your own you've just abandoned the whole concept of the local church if you say i got this i got this wired i know the answers to these things I know how this works. That violates the whole concept of being part of a body. I don't have to say this, but I will. What if your nose said that to you? Your elbow, your knee, your ear, your eye. I've got this wired. I know how to handle this. I know how, as a nose, to serve other bodies without my body or the head of my body telling me when and how and where I should do that. It's none of their business. It's my life. See, that's a Western mentality. It's not a biblical mentality so we are called to serve one another to whom is peter writing he's writing to local churches serve faithfully within your local church know your giftedness know your giftedness and listen don't get hyper obsessive about your giftedness saying well i'm pretty sure this is my giftedness and therefore uh, i can't do that i've served in two different churches as the worship leader And believe me, I was serving as the substitute for the next guy. That's not my greatest giftedness. I could do it. Hopefully I served faithfully and well and with excellence. But I have no desire to do that. Brad's got job security for sure when it comes to that. And Brad would tell you he's the sub for the next guy. We don't know what the Lord's going to do to replace any of us in terms of our giftedness and service. But we do know that each of us is gifted with particular giftedness so we want to be faithful to that as each one has received a special gift i believe peter here means a prominent gift you have giftedness you might have five you might have eight i don't know Uh, you've got a different blueprint or fingerprint from every christian who has ever lived throughout the history of christianity or ever will But you have a special giftedness. There's a prominent gift. There is a giftedness in you that you will be most effective with in efforts to produce the proper working order of the body, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. What is that? How are you accomplishing faithfulness to that? here's Here's a way to ask it. Here's a good way to ask it. Is your local church Growing in its dependence upon your faithfulness and your giftedness. See that? See how important that is? Now, you say, well, I can see that why it might be true with you or necessary with you, but not with me. No, no, friends, my role is no more important than yours. See, again, Western mentality. Western mentality says the preacher does all the work. When I was in my early 20s, I worked at a a large engineering firm. I was assistant analyst for about five years. And I remember getting to know a guy there at the, at, at the workplace. And I thought, oh, it seems like I've got a friend here who seems to know the Lord and love the word. And we started talking one time. And, and uh, he said something. And at that point, I was an associate pastor. I was doing that part time. And he said something at one point about, yeah, I don't do that stuff. That's the minister's job. I, I said, really? Is your role and your life that unimportant? Are you sure about that? So it's a Western mentality. It shows very little regard for the importance and the significance of every single believer. Now, let's not forget the reality that there are going to be extenuating chapters in your life where because of difficulties that require your time elsewhere, you're not able to do everything that you will always be able to do or otherwise be able to do. It's not not my role to dictate that, but it is the role of the church to help one another think through that together we want to help each other with that so that we would be faithful to serving one another with our grace gifts this is a matter of God granting by grace giftedness you don't choose your giftedness now you might feel like you do and that's okay you might be kind of sorting through it all what are the needs at the anchor bible church and you find out what they are and you start doing this start doing that you're a little better at this than you are at that but pretty soon you find out, okay, I think I'm more gifted in one or the other, either the speaking gifts or the serving gifts. Not to say that speaking is not serving, but that is the dichotomy that Peter gives us here in our text this morning. He puts an emphasis on the need to understand that there are speaking gifts and there are also serving gifts. As we have said here, he's called us, to be faithful, to serve one another with our grace gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 says it this way, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I think that's reason for us to say that to be unaware is to disobey Scripture. So if you're in that position where you don't know what your giftedness is, let's shore this up quickly. Let's get to work on this. Go to your family group shepherd. Go to the person that you're involved in in discipleship with and say, I want to shore this up. I want to be maximally effective for God's glory in the church. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Now there are varieties of gifts, right? There's diversity, varieties, multicolored expressions of giftedness given to the body of Christ, but the same spirit. Isn't that great? So all this diversity, I mean, think of it in any other context that we can think of that we might hope to use to illustrate this, it doesn't work out, whether it's the workplace or the family or the neighborhood or wherever, when you've got one person who's kind of the go-to guy or gal, and everybody has diverse responsibilities, and you've got one head, well, that's good, and things work better that way, but it always falls apart somewhere. But if we would be faithful to understand from the Scripture what the gifts are and faithful to pursue the same Spirit, then God will use us maximally. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, he says. I'm still in 1 Corinthians 12, now verse 6. There are varieties of effects. But the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We won't get today into which gifts are existent today and which ones aren't. We've been through that extensively. But I will say this. The greater issue is the common good of the body. See that? The glory of God being the primary grid through which you look at everything, asking that question, then really should be followed up by, uh, is it really going to result in the common good of the body? What body, by the way? The universal body? How in the world will you ever know? You can certainly know in the context of your local church seeking counsel from others who might be willing to lovingly and graciously and patiently and helpfully say, yeah, I, I see you contributing to the progress of your local church in the advance of the gospel, in the advance of the kingdom of God. But how can anyone really assess that if you're not devoted to a local church? much more we could discuss on this but i encourage you to read through romans 12 read through first corinthians 12 get a handle on what the gifts are read through ephesians 4 i'll just say this from romans 12 verse 3 for through the grace given to me i say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think friends this is really the problem This is really the issue for a person who's not effectively grafted into a local body. What's his problem? He thinks more highly of himself than he ought. Listen to what Paul goes on to say here. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Can you really say that in a practical sense about the universal body? You can theologically. You are one and the same with the universal body. But can you say that practically in terms of how you exercise your giftedness within the body of Christ? No. You can only say this about one unit if you can say it. And I know that many, many of you can. Romans 12, verse 9, I want to skip there for a moment. Let love be without hypocrisy. Wow, isn't it amazing? Spiritual gifts are the context of that verse? Really? Yeah. He's just explained the interdependence of a local body. He's just explained that. And then he says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's very practical, very clear here. Very to the point. Abhor. It's a strong word for hate. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. He's just talked about spiritual gifts. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Who are you doing that with? Your local body or lots of other people? Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence... Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Believe me, you can find that in the church. You can find opportunity to bless those who curse you within the church. It's the context. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So two sub-points under this fifth The fifth point, again, being serve one another with your grace gift, letter A, 5A, if speaking with God's authority. If speaking with God's authority. Remember I told you that Peter here dissects giftedness into two larger categories, the first of which is the speaking gifts. And he doesn't delineate them, he just refers to them by that general category. He says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Now, my first experience with faithlessness to this command came when I was a freshman in college. I was brand new to the gospel, brand new to Christianity. I only went there to play football, and I was having a conversation with this girl who was talking about the concept of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That was all new to me. And then she launched into this discussion about mutual verbal interaction with Jesus Christ. And she said, hey, (laughs) let me tell you what Jesus was telling me the other day. It's so cool. He and I were going for a walk. I'm not kidding. It's what she said to me. He and I were going for a walk, and he was saying some stuff to me. I'm like, no way. There's no way. Come on, really? That was my first introduction to thus saith the Lord. Now that's an extreme expression, but again, I have to ask the question like I often do, where do you draw the line? What is truly of the Lord and what is truly not? I will never forget hearing a man from the pulpit saying, God told me, God told me that we will build this massive worship center. So why aren't you giving so that we can accomplish what God told me? God didn't tell him that. What God has told you is here and here alone. It's only here. But in the moment that you or I attribute something to the Lord and it is proven to be untrue, we exhibit what we see in Ezekiel 13, and that is what's necessary for a person to be proven a false teacher worthy of being executed. That's God's seriousness with what he has said about his word. You and I must ask the question of ourselves and of others. Where do we draw the line between what is truly thus saith the Lord and what isn't? So if speaking, this is point 5A in your list of points, with God's authority. Let me say this before we get into the rest of the depth of this. If you begin to think in terms of what many have called proof texting you run the risk of subjecting yourself to the serious punishment of god the person who says god told me i have a buddy who who has said did you get that in writing that's my buddy rob Sines. that's the right question did you get it in writing god told you that really Matthew 7 verse 28 when Jesus had finished these words the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes let me tell you what what this wasn't this wasn't an angry protest at everything that bothered Jesus it wasn't a hand-clapping, foot stopping, screaming tirade where he was angry about things and just felt like he needed to tell people that they needed to do things the way he wanted them to do them. He spoke with authority because he rested in the eternal Word of God. Now, let me be real clear about my own role in your life, my own role in this church. You don't want my opinion. It's really not worth much. Really. Unless, of course, it is genuinely derived from Scripture. I mean, I know how to use sentences that I didn't pull directly from Scripture that are reflective of what God says. So do you. But at the point where we say, okay, um, I've just told you something, now let me back it up with Scripture. You ever heard that phrase? You know I can back it up with Scripture. That gives me the ability to tell you anything. And then, you know, thumb through the Bible and give you 12 verses that prove my point. Anybody can do that, and lots of people do. Titus 2.15. Really, uh, in my mind, uh, one of the linchpin passages of the Scripture. This is what connects so much of what God has declared and what man can do to really be faithful to what God has declared necessary of mankind. Listen to this. Titus two verse fifteen. Paul the pastor speaking to young Pastor Titus, these things, so everything I've just said to you, these things speak and exhort with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Speak it forcefully. Say it with confidence. Rest in it. Don't be inclined to cosmetically uh, refigure it in such a way that is now palatable to unbelievers say what it says point out what's actually there how though could titus do this how about this how can you do this let's go back to verse one of titus two But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. You see, that gives Titus latitude to use his own terminology to speak sound doctrine, because why? It's fitting, it comes from, it's reflective of, it's derived out of God's heart as given in the Scripture. So Titus, speak things which are fitting. Speak sound doctrine that's fitting. Older men, older men, guys, you listening? Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. In a moment, you'll see why he designates that command for older men. And then he shifts gears, older women. Verse 3. Likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You folks with young children, glue your life to this reality. Those of you who don't have children yet, glue your life to this reality. You want children who don't dishonor the Word of God. Subject yourself to the necessary element of what Jesus commanded to us in Matthew 28 to engage in discipleship. Don't think, parents, that you can handle the discipleship of your children on your own. Forget it. It's a lost cause. And there are those who arrogantly and pridefully think that they can do it on their own. Well, that's not the church. That's not the picture of the church. I'm certainly convinced not, that's not the picture of our church. I, let, let me just tell you, I need you to tell me what's going on in the lives of five little boys named Dawson, Cole, Quade, um, Jax, and Silas. <laughs> I need that from you. I don't know how they act when I'm not around. Well, actually, I do. But you see it. And there are some of you that I'm looking at in this room thinking, man, am I excited that one day you'll be discipling them in addition to my discipleship of them. So important that they understand the necessary element of the teaching of the Word of God and where will they develop in their minds credibility for that person? Primarily in my home. How I live my life will determine whether or not they see the value of the speaking gifts. That's where credibility will be established. But I need you. Young men especially. I need you to embrace my sons and help me disciple them. Those of you who are gifted to teach, I need you to be faithful to that. Right? You need me to be faithful to that. I need you to be faithful to that. There's so much more here. I don't have time to go through all the passage here. But you see, when uh, Paul here refers to these things, this is what he's talking about. Be committed to sound doctrine and teach it with all authority. It doesn't mean shove it down people's throats. It means believe in it. Trust it. Know that it's necessary. It's all you need. I had a guy years ago, I was in a Bible study, and we were talking about the need to understand sound doctrine. He held up his Bible. He had a thick Bible. He had a study Bible. And he said, very frustrated, he looked at me and he said, There's a lot of stuff in here. (laughs) I feel the same way. Why then? Why then would I do demographic studies on what's currently going on in unbelievers' hearts and lives so as to better understand how to minister to them? There's more than enough for me to get my arms around here. This is what we should be subjecting ourselves to, to be faithful teachers of the Word of God, those that the Lord would truly use, that we would speak with God's authority. Again, keep your nose in Titus chapter 2 to have a sound understanding of what Paul is dealing with here. 2 Timothy 3 then, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God, means God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What is he speaking about? He's talking about the word of God and its sufficiency. That the word of God has shown itself to be sufficient. What does the man of God subject himself to? The word of God. And why? For four reasons. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what's exactly enough. That is what is exactly enough. By the way, I believe that that certainly means subjecting ourselves to those who have studied well and studied faithfully. Spurgeon said that the man who doesn't subject himself to the brains of other men proves he has no brains himself. That you or I would think that we somehow have a handle on the Scripture by ourselves is nothing short of personal arrogance. Arrogance. 2 Peter 1 verse 20 but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation you ever heard somebody start a theological conversation with these words well let's just agree to disagree that's a plan for failure do we really want to say that about everything we disagree on in the Bible can't it possibly be that somebody's actually right and somebody else is wrong is it not possible that we could actually arrive at the Holy Spirit's interpretation? I'm out of a job, if that's the case. The role that you and I have in each other's lives is to faithfully understand and communicate the singularly accurate interpretation of Scripture. And then I know the obvious question, well, what about the godly men and women throughout ages who have disagreed on certain passages? It's a different question. It's a good question, it's a necessary question, and we must address it. But the reality is, when it comes to the fundamental truths of the Scripture, the foundational truths of soteriology, we must agree. And we would be faithless to not agree with regard, what am I talking about when I say soteriology, with regard to how God actually saves man. We must agree on that to start with. There are plenty of other issues that we should agree on. Now listen to this, 2 Peter chapter 2, listen to this in verse 1. But false prophets, this is right after he said that no interpretation is of man himself, right? It's men moved by the Holy Spirit. Men using their own uh, linguistic style, their own language, their own heart, their own personality, but God determining what would be said. So it's the Spirit of God giving man the words. And then this, in the very next chapter, the very next sentence But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep in other words their destruction will come to pass but my effort here is to show you that there are those who intend to deceive and for the most part those who intend to deceive with the use of the word of God intend to do so so as to line their pocketbooks that's ultimately what it comes down to i referenced ezekiel chapter 13 earlier listen to this then the word of the lord came to me saying this is ezekiel explaining that the word of the lord came to him with regard to others who were saying the lord uh, the word of the lord came to them get the context then the word of the lord came to me saying son of man prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration listen to the word of the Lord you see that he's saying God is saying to Ezekiel listen to the word of the Lord and tell them those who are falsely teaching to listen to the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God "'Woe to the foolish prophets "'who are following their own spirit "'and have seen nothing.'" Because what's going on here is that these false teachers are saying they saw this vision from God. Oh, have you heard anything like that these days? Have you watched TBN? You know, God gave me a vision. Kimberly told me she had a dream the other night. She said, if I thought uh, God was using dreams and visions today, I would think that he was using this one because it was so real. I know you want to know it was in the dream, but that's not your business. But sometimes dreams are so real. And so what do we do? We equate them with the dreams of the Bible. And did you know that dreams and visions and miracles are phenomenally minuscule in the scripture? I don't mean in terms of extent or greatness. I mean in number. There are three eras and three eras alone where miracles took place. And each of them only lasted approximately 60 years. And yet we think we hear God talking through a bumper sticker or a billboard or a movie or a dream or a conversation with a six-month-old and we proclaim that he's told us something it's a stern warning here further in Ezekiel 13 verse 8 therefore thus says the Lord God because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie therefore behold I am against you declares the Lord well that's not good I am against you. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. This is not unfamiliar. The preface uh, that James gives in his delivery on the tongue, the dangers and the power of the tongue, in verse 1 of James 3, This is the preface to that section on the tongue, which is so valuable and so profitable for us. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I think of Isaiah 66 when I think of this reality, where Isaiah has proclaimed that the man who stands to teach the word of God must tremble at the word of God. Can I just ask you to kind of go through the annals of your religious or church or even Christian experience and ask yourself the question, do you know someone who, who professes to teach the Word of God, who tries to put on a comedy routine in the pulpit, does things that are grossly immature, even darn near ridiculous? Can I just tell you that that man or woman does not tremble at the Word of God? I can tell you this with full confidence Preaching scares me near to death. Because I'm constantly reminded as I study of the reality of what I will be held accountable for. It's frightful. And I by no means set out on any basis ever at all and think, you know, I'll just kind of just go through something. <laughs> I think we'll just do this or that. I think I know that well enough. Why don't we just kind of you know, tap into that and see what the Lord's got. We'll just trust the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get it wrong. Because the consequences are devastating. Let me start with this. The consequences are devastating for you. If I lead you wrong, the consequences are devastating for you. But ultimately the consequences are devastating for me. And I am frightened by that and I am commanded to be frightened by that. So should you. Many of you are gifted with the teaching gifts, with the speaking gifts. So I'm speaking as much to you whose value in the body of Christ is every bit as great as anyone else's in the body of Christ. It's important for you to be thinking more so about your speaking gifts right now than mine. I believe you're the ones, including myself, who Peter is addressing here. William C. Brownson said of the man who teaches the word of God or the woman, he is a messenger, not an improviser. He's a messenger. He has something to deliver, and he must deliver what God has said. In Colossians 1, verse 28, you know this. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. And this is what Paul says about that. It's one thing to say that. you know, It's one thing for Joel Osteen to wave his Bible in the air. It's another thing for him to actually sit down and have any idea what it means. And this is what Paul says about that. Colossians 1, verse 29, after he has said we proclaim Jesus Christ for the perfection, for the completion, for the maturing of you who will listen to us proclaim him, here's what he says about the preparation for that. And let me preface what Paul says here by saying that the spirit-filled preaching of the word of God depends upon the spirit-filled study of the word of God. And so Paul says here in verse 29, for this purpose I labor. I labor. I labor striving he he doesn't say i got a bible got the holy spirit we're good i labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me and paul looks at that and he's stunned by it paul's not arrogant and proud saying lord's working mightily through me he's perplexed by that but he knows it requires labor he knows it requires hard work that takes you sometimes into the middle of the night and gets you back up early in the morning before anyone else is up. Friends, if you've been called to a speaking gift, you must take this so very, very seriously. This is as much for you as it is for me. If it is true that thus saith the Lord, then speak as if it is so. And if you can't say thus saith the Lord, Don't give God credit for having said it. Teach the true utterances of God in such a way that discredits those which are not. Be so boldly confident in the truth of God's word that in the moment that you have an inclination to say something you're not sure about, you are prompted to stop and you bite your tongue and you don't say it. Your teaching should so truly reflect the heaven-sent commands of God that after hearing you teach, no one would ever want to dabble with the silly idea that he himself is yet receiving additional revelation. The idea that we need something more than what's in the Bible. When counterfeit prophetic utterances fall under the light of genuine God-given revelation, the magnified power of its illumination will cause the dark counterfeit to be exposed for the nothing that it is. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 say, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. When the washing of the water of the word takes place in the heart of the child of God, as a result of your teaching, it will cause the dry, useless meanderings of the human heart to no longer be appealing. But it will do more than that. It will reveal the distinction between that which is right and that which is almost right, that which is from God and that which is similar to what is from God. Once an infant has experienced the filling value of the pure milk of the word, he can no longer be satisfied with the watery substance he once survived on. Peter says back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You see, this doesn't matter to the false convert. It certainly doesn't matter to the false convert who has some persuasion on people as a teacher. All he wants is to continue having that persuasion. But if he has tasted of the kindness of the Lord, then he himself drinks of the pure milk of the word. He drinks of the word, which is as pure as pure milk. But once the growing child who is becoming an adult has experienced the satiating, nutritional, sustaining value of thick yet chewable and digestible meat, he's no longer satisfied with milk, is he? And he won't tolerate cotton candy and soda. Hebrews 5 verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, listen folks, if you've got speaking gifts, listen closely, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When someone shows himself or herself to clearly be non-discerning about basic spiritual issues, you can rest assured that he's not in the Word. He might think that he sounds as if he's discerning because he can easily be critical of others and their patterns. But he is not showing himself to be one who is connected to and dependent upon solid food when he exercises non-discernment. If you preach... Preach with power. If you teach, teach with a torrent. Know that what you say is from God and say it just as He would. Say it like God would say it because it is Him saying it through you. When you teach God's Word, God's people expect to hear from Him, not you. They can hear from you over a meal. When you're teaching God's Word as the meal, you don't want to spoil it with your opinions. They expect less from you That might be because they've never heard sound teaching and they'll only be overjoyed when you feed them properly. Don't give them Dairy Queen just because that's what they're used to. Feed them like it's their last meal because it might be. Father, we look to you in this moment for an increasingly rich understanding and dependence upon the power of your word as the Apostle Peter, our brother who was found to be faithful having once been found unfaithful has so richly and faithfully and effectively communicated your word we want to be faithful to that as well as we sing now we have carefully assessed the words of these songs to ensure that they are genuinely reflective of your word Help us, Father, to sing them with conviction, even as we are called in the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians to to teach one another with sound doctrine that the Word of God would dwell richly within us. We long for you to help us to do that even now. As we look forward to next week and sing the strength of God given to us in serving May it be that we would be equally compelled this morning not only to those who are gifted to speak and to teach to to do so as the utterances of God but even so that we who would serve with our hands and feet would do so with your strength. We ask now ultimately that all these things would be done unto your glory. Amen.